We will be reading the Song of Moses this morning, Exodus chapter 15, but before we do, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, you are great, you are uh, all-powerful, you are majestic, you are holy, and we give you praise this morning. We give you praise most of all for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, and uh, we are just so grateful for that, Lord. We pray this morning, we need to hear from you, and we ask that you would um, just... Fill Pastor Adam with your Holy Spirit, give him clarity of thought, and help him to uh, preach your word in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Exodus chapter 15, Uh, we're going to read 1 through 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Felicia. Now are the chiefs of Eden dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Exodus 15 is sometimes called the Song of Moses or the Song at the Sea. It's basically a worship song that Moses wrote right after the Egyptians were defeated at the Red Sea. And uh, I would have loved to have watched Moses write it. (laughs) I imagine that he climbed out of that seabed, that dry seabed, and then he turns around and he watches a whole bunch of other people come out of there. And then he watches it all crash down on the Egyptians. 
And he sees all of this and his heart wells up with worship. And he's just got to, he's got to sing a song. He's got to write a song. His heart is just bursting with praise. Uh, and that really is the essence of worship. Seeing something that God has done. Remembering God's great attributes. Experiencing God in some way. Uh, maybe looking back on something that he's done in our lives uh, or just reading about his mighty acts in the past. And the, the result of that theological experience, that awareness or that knowledge of something that God is or something that God has done, it results in an emotional experience that we call worship, where your heart just bursts up and you have to do something about this. Moses responds by writing, and later we'll talk about how uh, talk about what Miriam does. She actually dances. Can you imagine that? And that's the essence of worship, and this is why God saves. This is the purpose of the Exodus. This chapter actually func- functions as a pivot point. It's concluding everything that's happened up till this and introducing some things that we're going to see in coming chapters um, Leland Riken wrote about the Song of Moses. He says uh, that the Song of Moses is the very reason God saved his people, so that he would receive the glory of their praise. So Joe just read the whole song. What I'd like to do, instead of going line by line this morning, what I'd like to do is draw out a few different themes. And I don't want to impose sort of a weird uh, outline on it, because I think sometimes we ruin poetry by overanalysis. And so What I would like to do, though, is having read it a whole bunch of times, I think there are three major things that come out of this song, and that's what I'd like to look at here this morning. And the first major theme or the first big idea that comes out of this song of Moses, and if you've got your Bible open there, you could maybe write these things in the margin or underline some of the key verses so that when you come back to it later, you'll remember these things. And the first one here is the glory of God. The glory of God. The song begins with this famous phrase. Maybe uh, you could raise your hand if you remember the children's song based on that. Uh, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Does anybody remember that song from, yeah, old time Sunday school? Good, all the Baptists in the room remember that. (laughs) We had actually a lot of really fun songs. I don't know why we don't sing them anymore. Who's in charge around here? I don't know. Anyway, that's a classic phrase from Scripture. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. That's the emphasis of this song. The emphasis of the song is that God defeated his enemies, and we see over and over some really cool metaphors, and this will actually help you. I'm going to say this as a little sidebar, and you can do what you want with it. This will help you to interpret other sections of Scripture, because you've heard the literal stuff that happened through the ten plagues, especially Passover, and then the crossing of the Red Sea, and then you can see how Moses speaks about that in very metaphorical terms. And that'll help you to see other sections of poetry that there might actually be metaphors there. Rather, And so then when you talk about interpreting it literally, uh, you'll know what, what you're doing. So here we go. Uh, the Lord is a man of war, he says in verse 3. So this is the emphasis of the song. God defeats his enemies. The Lord is a man of war. And we've seen divine battle all the way through Exodus. After all the slavery, all the injustice, all of the plagues, all of Pharaoh's refusals, 
Here is Moses and he's standing on the beach and he's looking down at what God has done. And the main thing that comes to his mind, and I think this is important, it is the main thing that comes to his mind is God's attribute as divine warrior, that he defeats his enemies. There are other things that he says about it, but what he says about God, but over and over we see him talking about God as a divine warrior. God is victorious over his enemies. That's the, the, the name of the song. That's the purpose of this song. And the reason that God is victorious over his enemies is because of his power. Sometimes the Bible talks about God's right hand, which is an old ancient way of talking about ultimate power or when it's referring to God, his omnipotent power, his all-powerful power. Exodus fifteen six. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your enemies. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. So Moses used that phrase glorious in power. And that word glory, it appears a lot of times in scripture. Uh, It means something that is superior by comparison. Glorious in power means that God's power is greater, bigger, higher, stronger, grander than all other powers and moses talks about the greatness of god's majesty these words are really rich Um, the greatness of god's majesty the hebrew word greatness has to do with quantity or wealth so it's like an abundant or like a rich majesty and that word majesty we'll associate it with kings and we associate it with royalty but it means to rise up it comes from a root meaning to rise up So that's what majesty is. It's this glorious rising up to an exalted place. And uh, that word majesty is important because it's used four times in this song. And uh, I was thinking uh, about that scene in the movie Fellowship of the Ring when Gandalf snaps at Bilbo because he won't give up the ring. And and Gandalf gets really huge and everything. And he says, uh, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. Uh, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. So what that is, there is majesty on a small scale compared to God, of course, but that is, that's majesty. That's a raising up or a rising up in a glorious or dominating superior way. Uh, Micah, when he was prophesying about the coming Messiah, the prophet Micah said, he shall arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So what he's saying here is this future expression of the Messiah where he comes and and he is so glorious, um, he's so majestic that he rises up, and it's out of that strength, it's out of that majesty that he's able to shepherd his people and lead us. Isaiah, by contrast to the other prophet here, It's actually condemning idolaters and he's telling them, you better be careful here about your idolatry because God is majestic. And he says in Isaiah 2, enter the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. So it's very good that God loves us. We like to talk about God's love, of course, but his love is not enough to save us. It's not enough for God to just be warm, fuzzy, affectionate toward us. God has to have other attributes if his love is actually going to make a difference in my life, in your life, in the church, 
If the church is really going to push back the gates of hell, if I'm going to grow spiritually, if I have any hope of becoming more mature, God has to have more than love. God also has abundant power. He is higher and greater and stronger than all other powers. That's why he is able to destroy his enemies. That's why he is able to save his people. Nothing can stop him from doing whatever he wants to do. Now, if you had a superpower, what would you want that to be? Like if you could have any superpower at all. I don't know if you've ever thought about weird things like that, but I've wondered about what I would, what I would do. Would it be flying or <laughs> that flying? That's good. That's the right answer. Would it be, um, <laughs> what about invisibility? No, you wouldn't do that one? That's kind of a weird one. Don't say it out loud if you would want to do that one. X-ray vision. X-ray vision, that's another weird one. No, we wouldn't want that. Okay. <laughs> well, the funny thing about superpowers in this whole conversation, if you ever have this around the dinner table, what superpower would you have, is that it reveals a little bit of your psychology. It tells you a little bit about the kind of person that you are. Well, now, what does God do with immeasurable power? God really actually can do anything. He has supernatural power. He can do whatever he wants to do. So what does God do with his immeasurable power? Well, I'll tell you the main story of the Bible, when the Bible is explaining what God does with his superpowers, he saves people like you and me. He saves sinners. And therefore, God is worthy of praise. This attribute of majesty or power or greatness is worthy of praise. In verse 11, Moses says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That is a great verse. That's worth underlining. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder? doing wonders, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. David said something similar in his psalm in uh, 1 Chronicles 16. He said, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Now, let me just interrupt David here for a second and, and say, This is what worship ought to be about. Our worship songs cannot just be about, oh, you know, God, I love you so much or whatever. And those kinds of songs are good. I'm not uh, criticizing I love you, God type love songs for God. But worship in the Bible very often has to do with God's awesomeness and his greatness and his transcendence. We talk about the imminence of God, that he actually condescends to us and makes himself understandable, puts his Holy Spirit in us, and so he is accessible. So that's his, that's his imminence. But it's very important to also balance that with his transcendence. He is totally different from us. And in many respects, he is far apart from us. He is so great and awesome. Both of those things have to be held together in our worship. So again, this is David, and he says, ascribe to the Lord. He's saying, talk about this, guys. This is important. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness tremble before him all the earth yes the world is established it shall never be moved tremble before him god i pray that our worship would be a trembling joy 
So the song of Moses shows us the right response to salvation. So we've seen this, 14 chapters of what salvation looks like. So the only thing that tops those 14 chapters in the Bible is the cross. In the Gospels, we see God actually outdo himself uh, by saving people in an even more substantive and heroic way. But this is pretty awesome. 14 chapters of awesomeness where God continues to harden Pharaoh's heart so that it can become an even more awesome story, actually drawing and luring Pharaoh and his army out into the wilderness so that it can be an even more awesome story. Uh, and, And then we see the proper response to that. If we actually get God, if we actually get what salvation is, then the response to this is we stand there on our own little metaphorical beaches looking back on what God has done to save us. The, the proper response to that is this bursting out of a song talking about how awesome God is. God keeps telling Pharaoh, let my people go so they can worship me. That's the purpose of this. Let my people go so they can worship me. He doesn't say, let my people go so they can play more freely so that they can have civil rights and so on what he says is let my people go so that they can become my people and they will fully worship me in the place that i make for them and then so then here you are a foretaste of what will happen in the future here when they end up building the temple in jerusalem and coming uh, celebration after celebration here's moses leading the people in worship he looks back he sees all of this stuff happen And he writes this beautiful song. And you know, God is still doing this kind of thing. God is still saving people. He is still saving people from sin, from death, from Satan, demonic tyranny. And he is doing it for the purpose of worship. He saves you not so that you can just come to church and have an experience on Sunday mornings that's more interesting than watching NASCAR. He saves you so that you will worship him. He saves you so that your hearts will burst out and this tremble before him sort of I'm thinking about the splendor of his holiness and the immeasurable power of God that was required in order to save me a sinner that God rescued me and put me in a place in his kingdom and has protected me and provided for me and all of that. And when I think back on that, I have to sing. That's what God is doing, still doing, saving people, defeating enemies for the purpose of worship. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, and we talked about this, I don't know, whenever we went through this, a year or two ago, in the Ephesians series, he's praying for the Ephesian church, praying for individuals, and what he prays, he says, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. In other words, it was no small thing that God saved me and you. That took an heroic, all-powerful God to do that because we were deeply entrenched in sin and moving in opposite directions from God. And it took immeasurable power of God in order to snatch us out of that and to bring us to a place of salvation. And Paul wants them to know that that you may know, and he prays this, he prays this for the Ephesians, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, what kind of power are we talking about? What exactly does God do with his power? Well, it raises Jesus from the dead. And in the very next paragraph of Ephesians, 
He says this about God's power, and this is what God's power does toward us who believe, Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. Those are a couple of really good passages to connect together because Paul is talking about God's power, and his first example is God's power in raising Jesus from the dead. And he basically says that same power raised you from the dead too. So God's power raises Jesus. God's power raises us. He is a great Savior who, by immeasurable power, saves us from sin and death and demonic tyranny, and he raises us to eternal life in his kingdom. So our job then, our role, is to remember the great deeds of God, not just the Exodus, but also the cross and also my own personal story of God bringing the gospel to me and wooing me or drawing me to himself. So remembering his great deeds and responding to them with worship, with worship. If worship is not happening, the way to begin trembling in God's holy presence is to consider his great and awesome deeds. So you might say, well, gosh, you know, when we sing songs at church or when I'm driving around town, I frankly, my knees don't really knock in God's presence. I mean, I like some worship songs, but I can't say that I like tremble in the presence of the splendor of God's holiness. That's just not really where I'm at. Well, look, the the way to do that is not to try and sift through the popular worship songs of the day to try to find a better worship song or a better guitarist or vocalist in order to kind of so you can get some emotional hit off of the song. The way to do it is to get your theology straight and to really have an encounter with who God really is and what God really has done. And then you could be bongos in a tent somewhere in in India with songs in a foreign language and worshiping because it's not really the instruments that matter. What matters is a heart that's been formed by theological truths like the first 14 chapters of Exodus. All right, so I said there'd be three things that I wanted to draw out of this song. The second one is the name of God, Yahweh, which appears many times. Thirteen times in this song, Moses uses God's um, special name, Yahweh, and you can see that in your translations when the word Lord is all capitals. So that's the English translation, Lord, all caps, of the, um, oh, that's a cute little noise, isn't it? Is a uh, all caps, uh, is an all, so the all caps Lord mean, is where the Hebrew word Yahweh is being used. And you see that 13 times in this discourse. So from verse 1 all the way through 21. Now, let me just remind you, because we did a little bit of this at the burning bush where God actually introduced himself with this name. The name Yahweh is difficult to translate. It means something like, I am who I am, uh, which, is a, which is based on the verb to be. His name isn't I was. His name isn't I will be. His name just is. He simply is. I am. And so in each and every situation, God is. Some of us are reading Mere Christianity together. Lewis has a whole chapter on this in, uh, in Mere Christianity because it was a struggle to him. Uh, I don't remember if it was as a new Christian or before he became a Christian. It was a struggle for him to grasp this idea that God actually listens to prayers because presumably there could be a million people praying all at the exact same time, right? 
And so how is God going to respond to that? And I don't remember if it was Evan Almighty or Bruce Almighty. There was a, a movie of, of years ago where, you know, the emails, came, the emails came in as prayers. And so he's just trying to whip through it. And I realized it was sp- making fun of the fact that all of our email inboxes have this kind of infinite quality to them. But um, that's not how God interacts with our prayers. He doesn't just kind of try and get through them as fast as he can. God, because God has an infinite and eternal quality, He's able to interact intimately with our prayers. See, when I'm praying, it isn't that I'm just making a request like, oh, could I please have a new red bicycle? And so he's like, okay, sure, yeah, and he goes through a whole bunch bunch of others. But the process of praying is an experience of intimacy with God. As I'm struggling, how do I formulate this sentence in a way that is respectful and true, and what exactly am I asking him for? Because I'm, my heart is going, mm, but I'm not totally sure what that means. And that whole experience of the back and forth with the Lord is what prayer is. So he's got to be present there. Like somebody's got to be listening to that. I'm not just filling out a form and it goes off to you know customer service somewhere that maybe someone will process and I'll get what I asked for. Prayer is an expression of intimacy. The problem's actually worse because it's not just that at every particular moment there might be a million or more people praying, but God is actually eternal. And so all those prayers come to him at once. To him, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. So he's interacting intimately with Moses at the same time, quote unquote, because God is outside of time. He actually created space time. So God exists outside of time. But God is interacting with that in the same time, at the same time, uh, quote unquote, that he's interacting with my prayer and interacting intimately with your prayer. So there's billions potentially of these prayers happening at the same time. And so Lewis says the only way that that makes any sense is if you grapple with the eternity of God. He has an eternal quality, which is why his name I am is so important because he always is I am. He's not I was or I will be, but he always is I am. He exists outside of time. God always is. God always is fully present and aware because he exists outside of time. He has no beginning. He has no end. Now, that name Yahweh is deeper than that. It's more than just a timeless or eternal quality, but it also seems to imply God's self-existence. We are all created and therefore dependent on certain things, air and food and whatever. But God is the one being who exists outside of and before and independent from the universe. And so God is self-existent. He doesn't need help. He doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need anything in order to exist. And his name also implies mystery, and I think that's important here. We're not really sure what the name I am means. I mean, I'm proposing some things that theologians have said for thousands of years. Uh, I'm not saying anything creative or unique here. I'm just trying to do my best to say what theologians have said for a long time about God's name implying his eternity and self-existence. But that name also implies mystery because most theologians are like, well, it probably is this and kind of a thing. So God says, hello, my name is Yahweh. Everyone's like, okay, I'm not sure what that means, but that's cool. That's your name. We're not even sure how to pronounce it correctly. It's probably Yahweh, but some people pronounce it Jehovah. 
the correct pronunciation was lost at some point because the Jews were trying to be very careful about treating the name respectfully and the correct pronunciation was lost. So look, we can say a few things about God's name, probably this, probably that. But at the end of it, at the end of you know, reading or thinking or talking about all that, we kind of feel like we haven't actually said very much of substance. We haven't really seen the core of it yet. We're kind of like on the outside of the building saying, well, it's kind of like this, but there's probably 40 stories below the surface here. You know, the Bible contains a lot of names for God. Some of them are much more understandable, such as, you know, the Lord provides and things like this. But one of his most interesting names is in Revelation 19. It's when Jesus returns to earth on a white horse. And here's how he's described, Revelation 19:12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. How's that? He has a name that no one knows but himself. So we barely understand his most frequently used name, Yahweh, but God has another name that we don't even know, and he's not going to tell us. You see, God doesn't lay himself out for us. In part, because he has that prerogative, he's our authority, and so he does not have to spread eagle for us, but also because he is unfathomably and infinitely more glorious than we can understand. That's what makes him God. When Zoe was a baby, she saw the moon once. I've told you this before. She saw the moon as we were walking into our house in Chicago. It was just beautiful, and she looked at it, and she reached toward the moon, and she said, want to touch it? And I think that's us regarding the knowledge of God. You know, we, can, we have this perception that we can say or do something intelligent, that we can actually touch some kind of thing. And God does reveal himself to us. It's not all this mystery that we can't say anything true about. God knows how to communicate to us, and the things that we can know about God are very knowable. My point here is not that it's all a mystery. I'm not totally sure what any paragraph actually means. God's communicated very clearly about a lot of things, and we can say these things truly. But even with those things, there's a depth to each of these sentences. You've seen that. You've read that psalm before, or you've read that paragraph before, and you come back to it for the 30th time, and you're like, whoa, I never saw the most important thing here. There's an infinite quality to every sentence in this word because it was written by an infinitely glorious God who has no depth that we will ever probe. It's difficult to explain God's defeat of the Egyptians as well. It sounds like a run-of-the-mill children's story or just a myth until you look at it closely like we did last week and you realize that there are unseen forces at play and there are eternal purposes at stake God's own people are bewildered through the whole episode and they somehow end up on the side of the sea and then they're singing a song and so on. It's more than they can understand. And so it's no mistake that God uses the name Yahweh 13 times because it's a perfect word for what has just happened to them. The one true, eternal, self-existent, mysterious God of all creation entered his creation by fire and ripped open the sea And his enemies were not just killed, which he could have done. He could have just had them all poof, disappear, or fall over dead or something. But they were crushed at the bottom of the sea after having walked through part of it. And so Moses says, who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, 
awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. So Yahweh, I think, is an important word, important word for us to know. The third theme that I'd like to draw out from the song at the sea is the steadfast love of God. The steadfast love of God. If you remember, the Jews had a spiritual meltdown right before the sea crossing. Uh, (laughs) They were regretting that they came out and all of that, which is embarrassing, but I think it's also a little reassuring. God did not save a group of spiritual giants. He saved them because he made a promise to Abraham generations before, and that was their only qualification. I know that some of you feel like spiritual failures. Some of you don't. Some of you have the opposite problem, but some of us struggle <laughs> feeling like, we have, like we're spiritual failures. Uh, You feel like church is like a class that's a little bit over your head and you're not even sure how to study for the final or when the final is. I remember that feeling. Let me just say something to those of you who feel like spiritual failures. Be careful not to use your sense of inadequacy as an excuse to refuse God. Be careful not to use your feelings of inadequacy like, oh, I'm no good. I'm never going to be a mature Christian or whatever. Don't use your sense of inadequacy as an excuse or a defense mechanism from actually doing what God asks you to do. And so here's the setup. You have something in your life, your family, your job, whatever it may be. Something happens that is irritating or provoking. You get an elevated heart rate and you've got a choice in that moment. You've got a choice and a sense of inadequacy can result in somebody saying, well, I... I, this is ridiculous. And so you go to hard alcohol or say stupid things to people and so on. Uh, A sense of of inadequacy is no good excuse for not being mature, not acting like a mature person. The reason is because it's kind of the funny thing about Christianity is that all of us are inadequate. Every single one of us are inadequate. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so in the midst of a feeling of inadequacy, don't despair, but turn to God. God creates this this way for us. He never puts us in a situation that is beyond our ability to withstand the temptation. Isn't that part of the lesson of the Red Sea? They had just seen Passover and they're just about to cross the Red Sea. They are surrounded by great works of God and they have a spiritual meltdown, and which is a pretty good description of my life, I think. You know, these situations and you, you're just praising the Lord and then all of a sudden, you know, and yet God has steadfast love for those who are weary and heavy laden. Exodus 15, 13, he says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. He says in verse 17, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. You see, God is the one who does all of that. God does that. 
I mean, they have to get up and walk. So if the cloud moves, it's like, oh, okay. And so they go. But this is the one that, you know, God is doing this. I mean, you can't just sit there and say, oh, I'm tired. I, can't, I don't know. I mean, the cloud's moving. So let's go. Let's follow this thing. So it's not a passive experience. I'm not saying God does it all and you're a marionette or a robot. But God is the one who does this. He leads his people, the passage says. He guides his people, the passage says. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. Everything depends on God. And so inadequacy is a poor excuse for immaturity because the whole point of grace is that God saves the inadequate. Of course we're inadequate, but God takes people like us and rips open a path for maturity for us to be able to glorify him in real life. An apparently impossible thing, but God says, follow me. Follow you, follow you bear. Follow me down through the middle of this sea. Follow me through the valley of the shadow of death. Follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Put an instrument of death on your back and follow me, follow me, follow me. Well, how do we do that if we have a temptation or a tendency to sort of drool in the midst of his majesty. Like, how do we follow him if I have a tendency to do that kind of a thing? And here's how. I realize that many of us are tempted to just spiritually melt down in the face of some kind of problem. I know that that is a temptation and maybe a tendency. During those times, think about this. This is Psalm 77. It's a section from Psalm 77. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. That all sounds scary. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, maybe our situations are confusing and overwhelming. Many times they are. I can think of two or three this last week scenarios that were confusing and overwhelming and yet we are like little lambs following a shepherd and he is a competent shepherd and so he knows how to say look don't worry about all of this right at this very second just come here for a second just follow me there's better grass over here follow me he knows how to do that he's really good at at doing that David says in Psalm 61, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. See, Christianity has inadequacy built right into it, so to, so to speak. We, we have to get to some place higher than we can go. We need to do something totally impossible. And so we pray, like David, that God will lead us there. And so, when you're in the midst of that scenario, think, like, you know, think, take a break, do something to think about what does God's word say about this? Or pray, simple things, the power of the word, the power of prayer in those scenarios, instead of just going, oh, forget it, this is a mess, and, and going in that direction. Don't do the spiritual meltdown. Or after you've done the spiritual meltdown, like, pick yourself up and say, Okay, what does the Bible say about this kind of a situation? If you've never thought about that before, think about the scenarios where you tend to spiritually melt down and find scriptures that deal with those scenarios and post them around your life. Get them on your iPhone. Put, put them places around you so that when you're in the midst of a, oh, I can't, then you see that scripture 
And it reminds you and it arrests your heart and it, and it helps you to, to follow the Lord. Remember his great works of the past. Read the, these first 15 chapters of Exodus if you're in a moment of despair in order to remind you of the kind of awesome God that loves you. Look for the word, look for the spirit to help you in real life scenarios. So Moses praises God for his steadfast love and the crossing of the Red Sea was this huge demonstration of steadfast love, also a massive demonstration of power over his enemies. And he takes, you know, these undeserving people through an impossible path for the purpose of bringing them to the promised land where they will be established and worshipful. So, you know, there's so many things that just don't matter. Enemies don't matter. Feelings of inadequacy don't matter. Your childhood and upbringing and all of the mistakes you've made in the last few years don't matter in the light of the fact that God is your shepherd and he loves you and he has the power to redeem and heal. So trust him. Trust him. Last thing to say here as we conclude is just to look at what Miriam does. Exodus 15, verse 20. Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron. I'd love to know why it doesn't say the sister of Moses. I just don't know. Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, (laughs) took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. So can you imagine that? Just imagine what that was like. I can think of a couple people in our church who would possibly do that. (laughs) And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea. Um, you know, there's a little Christian school that meets here during the week, Grace Classical Academy, and there was the end of the year party on Friday and a big uh, slideshow. And a couple of the slides showed pictures of a swing dancing class that happens in here uh, from time to time. And uh, I just have to say, you know, as a pastor... I love seeing young people dancing in the church. I love that. There's something about that. Now I realize they're singing, they're dancing to Pharrell and that kind of a stuff. And so it's, I I understand that. But, you know, the church that I grew up in, there wasn't a lot of dancing, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's something just really good about kids dancing in a church building. Come on. Come on. Oh, that God would melt our hearts and that he would impress on us his attributes, his great and mighty deeds, so that we would respond not just with theological trivia awareness, like I can pass the final exam for freshman year in Bible college, but actually something interesting, like I can worship, that would be something. That would be something that God would loosen me up to worship him more, deeper. It's the point of the Exodus. It's the point of what God is doing, that he's making a people who do exactly this when they look back 
at who God is and what he has done. This is exactly what God does over and over through scripture, through the history of the church, through the history of my life, this combination of steadfast love and immeasurable power that saves both by defeating amazing, unseen, terrifying enemies and also by drawing us into his house over and over and over And so let me conclude with this, the very words of David. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And after that, David wrote in Psalm 40, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet on a high rock, making my steps secure. Has he done that for you? In response to that, David says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. This isn't just the song of Moses. It's not just a song of David. It's a song of all of us. This is what God's people do. Let's close in prayer. God in heaven, you are awesome. You are glorious and great beyond our comprehension in an almost disturbing way. If it were not for your love, then we would be flattened by this little grasp of your glory. And yet you do love us. You have steadfast love for people who tend to spiritually melt down, which Certainly doesn't excuse any of that, but it is nice to know that you love us in spite of who we are. So God, we praise you for your immeasurable power and we praise you for your steadfast love. And Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would know these attributes and that you would draw us into your presence with a knee-knocking reverence and with laughter and joy and dancing as remember who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.